This is episode 264 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like the work of William Shakespeare, That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can help support the show and listen to over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms, all straight from Patreon. Find out more and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life. Hi, I'm Paul Lovejoy. I'm a professor at York University in Canada. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. We found them in, in Bukhaberia. So they are, they are big books with, I don't know, 500 pages that are closed with, with metal clasps or ribbons. So these pages were pressed together, so there are dried plants in between these pages. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The fruit that we know today as a tomato was first introduced to Europe during Shakespeare's lifetime. As many new things were, this fruit received at first with a bunch of skepticism. It was considered a kind of curiosity. People called it a golden apple, and the phrase was pomodoro in Italy, where many considered the fruit to be dangerous, poisonous, and something that was pleasing to the eye, but secretly treacherous. Shakespeare echoes this sentiment in his play Pericles when he writes about golden fruit, but dangerous to be touched. Today, we're going to explore the arrival, reception, cultivation, and use of tomatoes for 16th century Italy, Germany, and Belgium with our guest and author of the article, 16th century tomatoes in Europe, who saw them, what they looked like, and where they came from for the journal Plant Biology, Tenda van Andel. Tenda van Andel is a Dutch ethnobotanist and senior researcher at Naturalist Biodiversity Center in Leiden, the Netherlands. She holds the Kluges Chair in History of Botany and Gardens at Leiden University and is a chair for ethnobotany at Wageningen University. She has done research on medicine and ritual plants in Suriname and West Africa. Her current project focuses on tracing the origins of rice in Suriname and French Ghana by integrating ethnobotany, history, and genomics. Hello, Tenda. Welcome to the show. Hi, Cassidy. How are you? So glad to have you here to tell us all about the history of tomatoes. I know in Tenda's article on 16th century tomatoes, she points out that the Renaissance botanists who were drawing pictures of tomatoes in this time period often neglected to identify where the sample they were investigating had actually been sourced. Tenda, what information do we have about where tomatoes were coming from when they were first imported to Europe during Shakespeare's lifetime? Well, we do have a lot of popular science books and also popular uh, science, scientific articles who tell something about the history of the tomato because we all love the tomato and we all know it comes from the Americas, so people like to write about it. But my colleague Anastasia Stefanaki and I found out that many of the historic information about the tomatoes actually not correct. 
And we know very little, also because the 16th century botanists who saw the tomato first, they were not all able to publish their research findings. It was the beginning of science as we know it, the Renaissance, and some people managed to get their drawings published. Many people died before they could publish them. And many of their botanical work, their ancient Hiberia and drawings and descriptions, handwritten notes, they're so old and so valuable that they are locked up between, you know, behind big doors in museums and universities, Hiberia, libraries. So many of this information is actually unknown. So what we can find online is only a few published sources which do not portray the whole variety of things that they knew and they have seen. That is what um, we have tried to explain in this paper. Now, were tomatoes in the 16th century all one color or a specific shape? That's what they thought for hundreds of years, that they were all sort of elongated and ribbed and made of a a golden color, let's say the the color of my my sweater. Because that is the only drawing, or actually woodcut image, a colored image, that was widely available. However, if you look at the unpublished sources of these poor botanists who died before their book came out, who never found the money to publish the book, then you can see that they came in all kinds of sizes and shapes and colors, red, orange, green, brown, uh, ribbed, round, small, big, and even the flowers, even some tomatoes had white flowers or very thick flowers, others had small yellow flowers. So they came in many, many sizes and shapes. What were the names given to this plant in the 16th century? I mean, was it always called a tomato or were there other names assigned to this fruit? Well, the published sources, the books that you can find online, they say often pomodoro or pomidoro or pomo amoris or mala aurea, which means golden apple in Latin or in Italian, golden apple. But we found in many of the unpublished sources that sometimes even in the 1550s, they already used the word tomatle. I pronounce it wrong, but that's the Nahuatl Mexican word for tomato, tomatl. That word was already known at that time, but it was hidden in the unpublished documents. So it is not true that the word tomato only was invented uh, 100 years later. It is the Mexican word, and it was already known by some scientists in the 16th century. What are the oldest illustrations of tomatoes that we have, and who drew them? Even some of these unpublished works, where, where did we see that? The oldest illustration of a tomato is made by a Flemish botanist, Rembert Dodoens. He draw a sort of ugly shrub with some red balls. It's not a very good drawing, but he was, you know, everybody liked it that he made the first drawing. And then later they know the drawing of the ripped, almost brownish golden tomato. But we found out that there are also unpublished, beautiful, actually more beautiful drawings by a Swiss botanist called Gessner and a German botanist called Ullinger and another German called Fuchs, really from the 1550s, but they were never published. And they also show many different sizes and shapes. So there was a large variety of tomatoes that entered Europe. 
Penda's article provides an overview of 13 surviving specimens of 16th century tomatoes as the foundation for the research into the history behind tomatoes. Tenda, are these specimens fossils of tomatoes or tell us about how specimens from the 16th century are able to survive so long that you could analyze them as part of your work today? Well, fossils, they're not because fossils are plant remains in stones that most of the time are already extinct. They are real tomatoes that have been preserved um, between paper and dried. They're more dead than dead. You can never bring back bring them back alive. That was a little bit suggested in the media when we found the 16th century tomato uh, specimen. They said, oh, you can use the DNA and breed back the original 16th century tomato, but it's dead. The DNA is crumbled. The seeds are no longer viable. So they're more dead than dead. But they're not fossils. They are, yeah, they're plant remains, dried plants. What was your next question? <laughs> well, I guess I would like to know more about where where you got them. Like, how did you find them? Were they preserved? I mean, this sounds like an archaeological yeah. situation. No, we found them in, in Bukhaberia. So there are, there are big books with, I don't know, 500 pages that are closed with, with metal clasps or ribbons. So these pages were pressed together. So there are dried plants in between these pages. And these old botanists, they thought they could make a book of all the plants in the world. And that's why the book are, books are quite big. Of course, they couldn't, but they didn't know by then. And that's also why they sometimes never published their findings, because they thought they have to make a book with all the plants in the world, which is impossible. And in the 16th century, the world all of a sudden became much bigger because the Americas were discovered, the Europeans were sailing all over the world, and there was so much biodiversity discovered that some of the work never finished. So who were these people that were putting the specimens into the tomatoes that you used? Do you know who it was that pressed those tomatoes? Yeah, we, we, some of them were unknown, we found out. Um, but it started with, with Italian scientists. Actually, it started with Luca Ghini, who was an Italian botany teacher, let's say in around the 1540s. He taught botany in, in Pisa and Bologna and, and Florence for almost 25 years. He has left very little, but he gave all his science to his students. Because when he died, many of his students wrote fantastic letters about the good teacher that he was. So all of a sudden, all our students have book herbaria in which they have dried plants. Other students were good in drawing. They made beautiful drawings. Other students described in Latin all these new species from all over the world. And then there were painters among the students and excursion leaders. So his students, all of them, almost all of them became famous. But it was Guinea who probably planted the first tomato seeds in the garden of Pisa, the Italian city. And that garden still exists. It doesn't have a tomato at the moment. Or if it has a tomato, it's not the 16th century one. But um, in in Renaissance Italy, there was a liberal society of science. People could do whatever they want. Um, the rich people had given the botanical gardens uh, to the botanists, and they could, you know, they could write down what plants they wanted. They could plant whatever they wanted. They could let students in and make collection and describe. They opened their gardens for science, and that was very special 
because the first tomatoes came via the Spaniards, probably from Mexico or Peru, but they first were presented, or the seeds, to the king of Spain. But we don't, don't know anything about that. And probably they were first planted in the, the, the garden of the king of Spain. But we have no access to the archives. Nothing has been published because Spain did not have this liberal scientific society. So we only know it when these tomatoes were brought by merchants from Spain to Italy. And there were the scientists that were able to, to write without any limitations or much freer than in Spain. In your research into these older specimens, Tenda looked specifically at DNA evidence. And Tenda, I wonder if there are any tomatoes being grown today that are very similar or perhaps descended from the ones in the 16th century. I know you said the DNA from the ones you used in your study was corrupted too far to be propagated, but I wonder if there's any descendants of this kind of tomato. Are there any tomatoes alive today that we could look at and say, well, that living specimen is similar to what they would have had in the 16th century? Yeah, there probably are. So what we did is we still took DNA of the leaf of the tomato specimen of the 16th century Herbaria that we have at Naturalis in Leiden. It was only readable for 1.2%, so that's almost nothing, but still enough to compare it to many other tomatoes who have been studied all over the world and of whom the DNA is perfectly preserved. And then we saw that it was similar to three Mexican tomatoes and two Peruvian uh, tomatoes. But when you dive into the germplasm information of these Mexican and Peruvian tomatoes, the the collectors of that material didn't really write down much about these tomatoes. They didn't. They say sometimes Indian woman does not speak Spanish. So they have collected it in Peru somewhere in the garden of an indigenous farmer, and they weren't even able to talk to her. And they didn't want to spend money to hire a translator. So we don't, they they sometimes say, oh, it's a wild tomato, or they they don't provide information. And this, this DNA material was collected in the 1950s, 70s, 80s. So we do not know if these people in Mexico or Peru still grow these tomatoes. Not many people pay attention to this very special old tomatoes. And our 16th century tomatoes look very much like those Mexican and Peruvian ones. But you know the situation in Mexico. People give up farming. They go to the United States. It's a poor country. There's violence. Especially indigenous people are are very much affected by this this narco-traficantes. So we do not know whether they still grow them. Maybe they're waiting in a refugee camp um, in Texas somewhere. Hopefully they will they will turn up somewhere and we'll be able to connect all I of these dots. So. Yeah. I know we would love to talk more about the history of tomatoes and look into some of these details that you've shared with us today. What are some of your books or resources you can recommend for us to use if we'd like to explore this history further? Oh, gosh. Now, well, I, I give it on my website. <laughs> I believe, a link to a university library in Germany where one poor botanist have made hundreds and hundreds of beautiful drawings, the Swiss botanist uh, Konrad Gessner, and he died before he could ever publish them. And it's not only tomato, it's also strawberry and many other crops that may look different today than they looked then. And I always feel so sorry for this botanist that they never became too famous, that 
that they and they also didn't know where to stop. Right? You know, when you write a book, you have to say, I'm stopping now because I have enough information for my book and the ne- the rest of the information will go in the next book. So people can't do that. So they, they made, they draw and they draw and draw and then they die. And then everybody forgets them. So that library has now published these images online and I give you a link. So I thought that's, you know, look at these beautiful drawings and I don't know, you can download them, put them on t-shirts, on coffee mugs, study them. These hardworking botanists have, yeah, have not gotten the credit they deserve. And then, I, I agree. And they, I should yeah. search online. <laughs> <laughs> we will place links to Tenda's work so you can read her article as well as the link to the library where you can see some of Gessner's drawings um, and remember his hard work that he did. Now, Tenda, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, if I can take one book, I, I, I was doubting between two books. I'm a botanist, so if I go to a deserted island, I have to find out what plants to use in order to survive. So you don't have time to read Shakespeare's um, completed works or the Bible. You have to stay alive. So I would love to bring a good flora illustrated book with, with pictures of the plants, the name of the plants and how you can use them. Because otherwise I would, wouldn't survive for a week and have no time to read books any any moment in my life however there's another book that i really like to read as a kid it is a fake book but it it was written by two dutch and it was sort of the diary of robinson crusoe he didn't leave this illustrated diary they just made it up but it's a sort of survival book where you can make everything out of plants animal traps houses bows and arrows hammocks And I love to read it as a kid. So you need that tool on a deserted island. I think those are great choices. One is very practical. So you could survive the stay there on your deserted island. But then, yes, I think the Diary of Robinson Crusoe sounds like a fascinating book to take with you Um, and, and useful, too, I think, at least for inspiration. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? I'm working on rice in the interior of Suriname, traditional rice varieties that do not appear in any of the colonial documents that Suriname was a Dutch colony. Uh, and apparently these seeds of these rice varieties have um, been transported uh, in the times of transatlantic slavery. And the enslaved Africans have, have taken these seeds and hid them in their hair. And when in Suriname, they ran into the forest and they still grow them. And many of these seeds have the names of their ancestors who escaped from slavery. So we're now trying in my group with Surinamese and American and Dutch researchers to look into the DNA of these rice grains and and try to find out which African country these rice comes from. That sounds like fascinating research. Tinda van Andel, thank you so much for being here this week and sharing with us the history of the tomato and walking us through exactly how we know what we know about the history of this fruit from the 16th century. Thank you so much for being here. This was a fun conversation. Thank you. If you like the show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please drop us a rating and a review on the platform you're listening from today. If you'd like to see some of the images that Tenda talks about in today's episode, the drawings by Gessner, as well as some of those long ribbed, golden, brownish, yellow sorts of tomatoes that she was talking about, we have those pictures packed in the show notes for today's episode. You can find 
those images along with links to the resources that Tenda recommends, including that library of images by Gessner that you can see online, all packed into the show notes at CassidyCash.com slash episode 264. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP264. If you love exploring 16th and 17th century England and all the aspects of life that were real for William Shakespeare, then you will love joining us in our Shakespeare fan club on Patreon. Patrons get access to over 150 additional episodes of our show that are not available on public listening platforms. Plus, there's other bonuses available on Patreon, like that Shakespeare film library, where you can catch video versions of our show, watch documentary films on the life of William Shakespeare, and some of my very own three-minute animated versions of Shakespeare's place. There's also an experienced Shakespeare tier on Patreon where you can access hands-on learning bonuses that coordinate with our show and with Shakespeare's plays. Things like lesson plans, activity kits, worksheets, and so much more. Our Patreon page is a great place to cook, play, and create your way through the life of William Shakespeare. Explore all the bonuses and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare Life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.